Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello, welcome to Big Squid. My name is Justin Hamilton. And in today's episode, my good friend Alexi Toliopoulos returns to discuss the second chapter of the Watchmen graphic novel. We also do a deep dive on the comedian, a character who defies definitive labels. He's a handsome character on the outside, but an ugly person on the inside. He's cynical and vulnerable. A lot of the time, he's awful about how he describes the world, but sometimes he's completely correct with those assumptions. It's also been said he was based physically on Burt Reynolds, and I can feel that in the illustrations by Dave Gibbons. He has that type of masculinity that I was very uneasy around when I was a child. I was raised by a single mum in the 70s and the 80s, so I never felt comfortable around those types of men. You know, the kinds of men that love sport and don't love the arts and love women, but they love women to be the type of women that they love, and they don't really love women who aren't the type of women that they love. You know those kinds of guys. They're the kinds of men that would wear tight shorts where you could see one nut hanging out and they'd be drinking beer, looking over at you, going, oh, yeah, what are you guys talking about? Yeah, those kinds of guys. They were not for me, and I never really enjoyed being around them. And to be honest, I still don't. But they're much easier to avoid when you're my age. Anyway, the comedian is a compelling character, so we'll have a bit more info on him later in the show. Uh, You'll also hear when I'm talking to Alexi, uh, I start talking about uh, a book that was a huge influence on a lot of comic book writers, and I drew a blank on the title of the book, and it kind of drove me crazy. But I've remembered in time for this intro, and when I say I've remembered in time, uh, well, I use Google. Superfolks, written by Robert Mayer, was a a uh, book released in 1977 that satirized superhero and comic book genres. It has been a huge influence on a generation of writers, people like Grant Morrison and Kurt Berswick. Uh, 
And it's also uh, one of many bones of contention between the superstars, Alan Moore and Grant Morrison. I'll put up a link at the Big Squid with Justin Hamilton Facebook page so you can have a read there. And there's also a closed off chat page, which just ask to be a part of it and you can be a part of it. I just set up a page where we can discuss our theories and our crazy ideas for the, for the TV show without feeling like we might be ruining it for anyone else. Finally, I just wanted to say how wrapped I am, not only with the new HBO series, but also the people I've connected with all over the world through this podcast. It's been great to have you on board. And look, to be honest, after working in commercial TV and radio for the last few years, uh, let me just say how much happier and more comfortable I am with my people, which is all of you. So once again, if you don't want to get onto Facebook, you can write to me at justinhamilton.com.au and please feel free to share this podcast with anyone who should be a part of our tribe. And it's our tribe, and we're all in this together. I'll pop back at the end to finish up, but for now, let's chat about Chapter 2 of Watchmen, Absent Friends. When was the first time that you actually came into contact with the Watchmen graphic novel? I've actually got with me here today the copy of it that I bought when I was 14 years old. Oh, amazing. Uh, came out, this was like the 2005 re-edition of it. Right. And I... I would Big have... bone of contention there for Alan Moore and Dave <laughs> Gibbons, isn't yeah, it? I guess so, must be. But I remember getting it... Uh, it was like around that time where I just started exploring comics and graphic novels yeah. as a medium uh, beyond like just like single issues and oh, kind of right. delving into like, you know, the killing joke and stuff like that, where I found Batman was my entry point. Right. And, you know, this is the one that everyone talks about. It says on here, one of Time Magazine's 100 best novels. Yeah. And it was the only graphic novel on there. And I think at that point in time, it was really infamous or notorious yeah. for being the only graphic novel on this list of great novels and being held in the same esteem as like, you know, the great American classics and right. international classics. And so it was kind of like this breakthrough text for me back then. Yeah. And uh, I think I hadn't really read anything like it where um, the, especially going through it again with you this week, seeing how effectively simple it is to read yes. and how effectively simple it is in its design to, uh, you know, it's from left to right, really easy to read. Yep. There's no, there's no, it's in those nine panels per page where they might change shape or they might change, uh, they might change size, but they won't really change shape rather. Right. And so if you're new to comics, it's such a great 
almost a good introduction point right. in the way that's laid out, the way it's designed, where it teaches you how to read comics yeah. in a way where it's simple and then all the characters have like unique looking dialogue bubbles. Yes. And then the, the, the inner monologues of those characters and the narration is in a different color as well. Yes. So it's kind of teaching you the, the language of comic books uh, as well. And because it's so simple, it allows the subtext to rise up to the top right. where you're not having to do the work on like how to read it. It's kind of teaching you how to read it. Yeah. And then it's also allows you to just go pick up things you might otherwise lose on a more um, intricately or more um, audaciously designed comic. Yeah. And it also, it, also the, the, the simplicity of it, which sounds mm. kind of like we're putting it down, but it's yes. not really, it's uh, it's just, beautifully laid out but there's almost a 3d quality to it that's the further you go into it you can look further into a panel and see things going on Mm. in the background that reveal characters or what's going on with certain people when the action's taking place in the foreground Mm. and that that beautiful line work allows you to just be able to really get into it because it's, I think it's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful artwork in it, especially from a color standpoint. It's really John Higgins beautiful. completely underrated. Absolutely, and I think that it's almost the artwork in this uh, graphic novel is almost underrated mm. because you know it stands as an icon of the genre, like this, the breakthrough icon of the whole medium of comic books is yeah. this is this piece of work. But um, it's never about the artwork. It's no. always about the content of the story, right. the plot. And the intricacies of that plot and the subtext of it all and how it's a commentary of America. And that's kind of where, from, you know, British outsiders, really. Mm. And then it's never about the artwork. No one's ever going like, oh, Watchmen's the most beautiful graphic novel you'll ever see. Right. The images are going to stay with you. They don't, you don't. That's never really part of the broader conversation. But going through it now, it's like, yeah, it's like this really simple comic book style or yeah. like very much in the tradition of... Superhero comics, yeah. where like the golden age and beyond, where it's like it's not flashy, it's just beautiful, and then it takes time to realize, oh no, the like you're saying, the perspective is so beautiful, right? The depth of the images is beautiful, and right. I think that it's it's so sneaky to have the art style like that, where it's slowly you see it become uh, more complex, yeah. But it's just, I think, oh man, now saying it like that, it makes me think like, I just, on your recommendation, watched all of The Leftovers. Oh yeah. And I think watching that and watching with my partner, seeing how that show, like from Damon Lindelof's storytelling, it's like, uh, you can read it so many ways. If you just want to have like a plot read through, it works that way. Uh But then if you're someone that's like studied mythology or studied philosophy or studied um, uh, religious philosophy, you can have like a different, different like a deeper reading of it. So it works on any kind of metatextual reading of it. Right. And then talking about the imagery from that and how simplistic it can be and you can just read it and go, wow, that was a sick... Uh, that was a sick superhero comic book, but then it allows for like all these subtextual, in-depth readings, even through the imagery. It's like fuck. Of course, Damon Lindelof is adapting. Oh yeah, <laughs> adapting this book to uh, a new f- a new format. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And you you can see, uh, you know, and I, I, I'm finding this is coming up in the the podcast quite a bit. Mm. Uh, you know, you see the influence of it in so many ways. I, I wonder if 
maybe Gibbons doesn't quite like. I think he gets the the recognition within the comic book world. Yeah. But I wonder if he doesn't quite get the recognition outside of that mm. because while the artwork is stunning, it is also. <laughs> Everyone looks kind of ridiculous yeah. because it's set in the real world. Yes. And the, the costumes, like it's not Batman and Superman's costume, which is like, is that spray painted on? Like, yeah. you know, and they're the sexless kind of uh, Greek gods. Yeah. Like all the heroes look a little bit <laughs> dumb. They and, look and, absolutely and, insane. And they look paunchy. And they look cheap. They look cheap. Yeah. And, and you know, even uh, Dr. Manhattan, who is the only character with any superpowers. Yeah. Like, he's walking around bright blue. <laughs> bright blue in a Speedo. In, in a Speedo <laughs> yeah. or just flashing his blue dong like yeah. there's no tomorrow. <laughs> Everyone seems to be a bit obsessed with, yeah. you know, in the first, uh, first chapter with the... Uh, when he's massive and he's naked. And it's yeah. like, like, what is going on? Yeah. Like, put it away. <laughs> and it's like you're seeing, like, the, uh, in, this, uh, in this chapter that we're looking at today, like, you see the images of the Minutemen from mm. the 1930s and 40s. Yeah, yeah, where, 40s and 50s, yeah. Um, the, yeah, through the, through the 1950s. And they look uh, absolutely insane. Like, yeah. the, the hooded, what's the name hooded of Hooded Justice. The Hooded Justice, it's like one of the worst superhero costumes ever. Yeah. Like, it's a guy with a, like an executioner's sack on his head oh, man, with he, a rope around it. Yeah, he kind of <laughs> looks a little bit like um, a Klansman who's <laughs> had his clothes washed in colours, which is ironic. <laughs> <laughs> and like the colour scheme on this outfit is hideous. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like it's like this purple with maroon, oh. a maroon cape, and yeah. it's, a, it's a cape with a giant collar. Right. And then, like, yeah, he's freaking cool. Right. I love that it's like, yeah, this guy's freaking cool, and he is like this, like, uh, you know, this morally ambiguously uh, uh, representation of justice. Right. And he looks insane. Like, insane. he looks like a Muppet. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, when you read the ancillary material in, mm. in the first three chapters, it's Hollis, it's extracts from Hollis yeah. Mason's uh, autobiography. And you, you read about Hood of Justice, who doesn't really appear much in the comic, yeah. but he's very pivotal in this chapter in yeah. particular. And you, you read about, you know, their ideas of who he was and what he was getting yeah. up to. And you think, uh, man, like, like. Everyone is messed up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone. Uh, but let's get into, uh, for uh, people who haven't read it or people who haven't read it in a while, let's get into the summary of what happens in Chapter 2. Uh, this uh, chapter is called Absent Friends. And while the funeral of Edward Blake is held, uh, who was the comedian... Laurie visits her mother, Sally Jupiter, who was the first Silk Spectre. Hearing about Edward's death, she remembers the night that her peers formed the superhero group, the Minutemen. That night, the comedian attempted to rape her, only to be stopped by fellow hero, Hooded Justice. At the funeral, Dan Dryberg, a Adrian Veet, and John Osterman reminisce about their interactions with Blake. Adrian remembers when his peers attempted to form a new superhero group, the Crime Busters. Blake ruins the meeting, claiming that they're all pointless because the world will be destroyed by a nuclear war in in less than 30 years. John remembers their time in Vietnam, a war that America won because it had the power of Dr. Manhattan at their disposal. The comedian reveled in the war and in this moment is approached by a Vietnamese woman who reveals she is carrying his child. They argue and the woman attacks Blake with a broken bottle that scars him for life. In retaliation, he shoots the woman. 
Dr. Manhattan watches all of this but doesn't intervene. Dan remembers their time dealing with protesters rioting on the streets of New York. This is the passing of the Keen Act, outlawing superheroes unless they comply and work for the government. That night, a former villain known as Moloch is attacked in his home by Rorschach, who saw him attending the funeral of Blake. Wondering why the former villain was at the funeral, Moloch recounts a night when Blake visited him a week before his death, drunk, blabbering about discovering an island full of scientists, artists and writers. Whatever was happening on that island shakes the comedian who believes Moloch to be a part of it because he saw his name on a list and the quotation at the end is from Elvis Costello and his song The Comedians and I'm up while the dawn is breaking even though my heart is aching I should be drinking a toast to absent friends instead of these comedians so in this issue uh, we see Rorschach leap out of a fridge that he had removed all the <laughs> contents from just so he can scare the shit out of Moloch, an old man who was dying of cancer. And uh, Alexi, I'm dying to know, is this a cool comic book moment or a satirical moment that shows the craziness of this world? It has to be both, right? <laughs> right. Because it's like that moment in uh, comic book media where it's like you see Batman emerge from the shadows right. seemingly out of nowhere, appearing from the ether, and it's to create shock in his villain or even his his allies. That's how he. That's how he yeah. uh, greets Gordon every time. Oh yeah, uh, but, or he just leaves. <laughs> yeah, like you exactly. know, Gordon's in the middle of reminiscing about the good old times. And he turns around and it's like <laughs> Batman's gone, and now just left in the shadow by myself. Yeah, yeah. next to a big light. Yeah, uh, but I think it's it's such a it's such a funny moment because I think what this does and rereading it now as an adult instead of like when I first was introduced to it to see the character of Rorschach uh, the presentation changes for me because right. you read it when you're a kid and you're like oh Rorschach's a fucking badass like right. he's he's cool he's so creepy and scary he's got the coolest costume he looks right. like a fucked up Dick Tracy character or something <laughs> and then you're watching it now it's like oh this guy is such a poser and so calculated in how he presents himself and to see him remove all the contents of this fridge and then jump in so he can cause shock and surprise it's so funny how uh, seeing how kind of actually lame that is oh yeah that he that he to cause this surprise he has to do the least cool thing in the world is by hopping into a fridge well also like how long has he been in there? <laughs> Just leaving a little slightly cracker jar, got oh. a straw coming through it. Like we've, we've all been told, don't get into a fridge yeah. that you find in the forest. Like, <laughs> But also, he could have just been in another room and yeah. stepped out and said, Moloch, you know, yeah, boom. Exactly. He's, he's had the same effect. Yeah. And I, I think I was like you when I was young. It's mm. like, oh man, he leapt out of a fridge. Yeah. But... Uh, I'm, I'm fascinated by it now. Like when I read it, it's like, oh, that is way too much effort. I, I wonder how long he's been in <laughs> yeah. there. I wonder if if he hasn't been in there for a long time, has he just been sitting on the lounge and then he hears, oh, I better get into position. Yeah. Like <laughs> watching telly. And it's also like, you know, this guy's house is so crusty. Like it's not, <laughs> yeah. it's not like a nice house. It wouldn't be a nice fridge. It would certainly stink in there. Oh, and yeah. it's like his cool entrance is coming from this shitty broken fridge. Oh, yeah. It would be a shit fridge. Yeah. And when you, because the uh, the artwork is uh, so beautiful. Once mm. again, talking about the simplicity of yes. the artwork, and and therefore the little bits of definition that you can miss. Mm. You, you you see him at one point, uh, Moloch. I think he's like making himself a cup of tea or something, yeah. and you can see just out of sight. You can see it's all frozen pizzas and yeah. stuff like that that he that Rorschach has pulled out <laughs> yeah, to, and left and left kitchen. there. So not yeah. only has he. <laughs> 
nearly given this guy a heart attack and then and then abused him for something that he hasn't done. And then he discovers the guy has, you These know, cancer. Defrosting. Yeah, yeah exactly. And then he thinks, oh, well, at least I can eat a snack. Oh, <laughs> oh my, my lean off. cuisines. <laughs> They've defrosted and thawed. Oh, it's insane. It, it, Rorschach is a... Uh, he's... He's an interesting character mm. in many ways because I think you kind of know where you are, especially for, I, I would say, younger boys. Yeah. He does kind of appear to be a little bit cool. Yes. Uh, uh, because he's uncompromising. And I think he, you know, we I discussed this with uh, Siobhan Coombs. Uh, mm. In many ways, he's he's... He's grown up Peter Parker, yeah. but shit hasn't worked out. Yeah. <laughs> He's Peter Parker with this like this edge and like this entitlement or yeah. something as well, where um it's like the perfect uh the perfect satire and the perfect um uh like you know vigilantism conserv or like the conservatism of vig- vigilantism yeah. that you know is kind of this subtextual reading of Batman or something right. like that or any superhero really but it brings that kind of like neoconservative libertarian values to the top right and i think that's kind of like you know, you read that now. I read that now and go like, oh, that's not cool with oh. me. I used to think that guy was so cool. I'm like, yeah, no, I disagree with him on fundamentally every level <laughs> now. Yeah, he's... Uh, there is... Uh, he is in, in ways... I was thinking, you know, I was thinking specifically of... Because uh, the character was inspired by Steve Ditko's uh, The mm, Question of the Mr. Question. Ray. Uh, so then it automatically takes me back to, the, you know, the spotty... Uh, Peter Parker, you know, those mm. first 30 plus issues that Ditko drew. And then uh, John Romita comes in and then he, um, you know, suddenly, which isn't a bad thing, and suddenly Peter Parker's grown up. Yeah. But, you know, this is, uh, maybe maybe it's a cross between him and imagine a young Bruce Wayne who doesn't come from money, who's yeah. treated like shit, and then just thinks, I'm going to hand out some retribution. Yeah. That, that's why it's, I think it's not, like, I think you have to be careful about applying too much realism to yes. the big characters. Yeah. The big characters should have, you know, the big established characters that have been around for 80 plus years yeah. work much better as a metaphor and you, you can still, like the Dark Knight trilogy allows mm. you to explore themes and real yeah. world uh, implications, but in the end, he's he's a bigger than life character. Yeah. I never watched the Dark Knight trilogy and think it's realistic. You I never just go, that's a man. No, yeah. <laughs> no, I think it, I think it treats emotions and motivations yeah. as something that we can relate to. But the fact remains, a real story about Batman is he sees his parents murdered. He yeah. probably does a lot of drugs. Probably <laughs> has sex with a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, is off his trolley for a long time. And if we're lucky, gets some really good therapy and yeah. gets his shit together by the time he's mid thirties and <laughs> yeah. turns his life around. <laughs> the realistic Batman is a guy getting into Nirvana over a few years and <laughs> <so> just <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> really becoming a slacker. Oh man, imagine uh, imagine a trilogy of Bruce Wayne yeah. just wearing a cardigan going yeah. through the grunge era and uh, not really being able to cope with Kanye. <laughs> I think I think you raise a good point because you know, on my podcast, Total Reboot, Cam and I, we were joined yeah. by you. We've yeah. been going through the Joker in cinema and Joker and yes. Batman movies. And I think 
like you say, looking at those the huge characters that are icons now, mm. especially watching them being reinterpreted to a new text, a new or a new medium, mm. um, other than comics, uh, because it's like that very specific one moment, and to kind of translate all the comics and all the baggage that comes with them, mm. the most successful versions of those big characters, Batman, Joker, Superman, they're all ones where they're not real people. They show yes. them as the symbol, and it's just about like the symbolism of everything that they represent rather than like this big dissection of them yeah. all as a real person like in the Burton Batman movie it's so it boils down Bruce Wayne Batman and the Joker slash Jack Napier to those bare symbols by the end where it's mm. like Batman created the Joker the Joker created Batman and that's all that you need to know to represent these two icons on the screen it's not right. showing you any in depth into the who the character they are it's just showing you the bare symbols of what they represent yeah, yeah, and it's uh, it, it's more fun that way as yeah. well. Because as, as soon as you start to, to, if you try to add too much realism, yeah, it all falls apart. Absolutely, like, it's logic over realism. Yeah, I, I feel like the Marvel movies did a, uh, a pretty good job. Yeah, uh, specifically, you know, I, I th- you have to give a lot of credit to Robert Downey Jr. Mm. and his performance, but. I think they do a fairly good job of manoeuvring their way through that character because, you know, the original idea for Iron Man was Stan Lee wanted to create a character that was, like, the last person that you would root for. And yeah. In the, you know, in the 60s, it was, a you know, a capitalist. millionaire. Yeah. <laughs> a millionaire capitalist who... Warmonger. Who, who sends uh, weapons to yeah, Vietnam. You exactly, know? a profiteer. Yeah, and so... Like, so I think they do a pretty good job in those movies mm. of just dipping into what makes the character, but never at any point having us really have to think about the yeah. the, the real world implications because the real world implications it's like oh yeah, it's weird to awful. go back to that first Iron Man movie mm. I did it recently for the first time probably since it came out and it was just like oh my god there's like Al-Qaeda is really in this movie like it's not just like oh it's like some fake no it's Al-Qaeda and like you're actually set in the real Vietnam uh, you're set in the real like Gulf War 2 and it's like oh yeah the looking at Thor Ragnarok we're so far removed from that first movie where we're in the real war that is happening at this time and George Bush is still actually in power well that's why I think uh uh, Infinity War and Endgame are actually monumentally great movies mm. because <laughs> there is a lot going on yeah. and it somehow all sticks together. Like, yeah. it all hangs together. Like, how the hell is Rocket Raccoon and Iron Man in the same movie? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great. It works. So, the thing, the interesting thing about Rorschach mm. is that, you know, especially going over it right at this time, Yeah, I feel like... A lot of people who really enjoyed the Joker movie would still find Rorschach to be pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I I was indifferent to Joker. Mm. Yeah. I was... Uh, well, I mean, I don't want to go in... So I could go for hours about why I didn't like that movie, yeah. basically. Why I think it was a cheap knockoff. I'm going to... No, no, I won't start. No, no, I no. won't start. But um, I, I think you're right where it kind of like... You, someone like Rorschach and this new interpretation of the Joker, you're seeing this really um, 
baseline characterization of someone who is perpetually a victim regardless mm. of them taking uh taking justice and action into their own hands there's someone that will always see from the character's perspective see themselves as the victim mm. and i think it that people can identify with that because, you know, in most people's perspective and their own stories, they're, you know, you're always going to be the good guy, you're always going to be the victim or whatever, or the hero. So I think that people can just see this, ident- that can identify with those characters uh, and then not see beyond their own perspective. Right. Or like the way that this comic book in particular, The Watchmen, kind of, sh- you see those characters through the perspective of, you know, the other people around them. Mm. Like, you see Rorschach a lot of the time um, through, like we just said, like, as a loser that's, like, trying to create this dramatic moment with this dramatic flair, but you're seeing the reality of it. You're seeing him through the eyes of Dan Dryberg, where it's, like, him, you find him alone eating beans in your apartment and stuff. Cold beans. Yeah, exactly. And it's, like... sugar out of packs (laughs) that he's just found on the, you know people's homes yeah so you're kind of like you're getting the full perspective of this character but because he's so alluring you kind of if you're doing a if you're doing you're, if you're not reading beyond what you want to see mm. you might miss those things yeah. the same way that I think the new Joker movie might connect with people yeah and uh, I think uh, you're, like you're not meant to be into Rorschach no and uh, and I don't know I don't know if that's the case with Joker mm. I feel like that movie is yes. made for you to be kind of into it i think that that movie is made for me as a 14 year old boy like right. the same way that when i read watchmen the first time i think that's the way joker movie <laughs> joker movie is made for i reckon joker movie the joker movie is like if my bedroom wall directed a movie when i was 16 based on the posters hanging on it oh right and just <laughs> <laughs> with the maturity of what i would have made the movie at the time as well that's fantastic <laughs> i was uh, i actually said to uh, a friend of ours will i said yeah. to him that uh, there's Watching the Joker movie without <laughs> Batman was like watching the Chicago Bulls after Michael Jordan retired the first time. Kind of compelling, fairly interesting. You're not going to win a championship, so ultimately, who gives a fuck? <laughs> <laughs> but it is that uh, it's that weird thing where uh, I just don't quite know what the message was. It has yeah. the, the the prediction I said to you, which I found mm. interesting, and I'm sure uh, I'm not saying this is a foolproof mm. uh, statement, but Everyone who seems to have enjoyed it are the type of people who are over superhero movies or aren't into mm. them at all. So yeah. it's that kind of thing of, oh, I'm not into superhero movies, but you know what's really good is Joker. And I yeah. I feel like saying, well, it's because you're not into superhero movies that you're being dazzled by that. Yeah, the Scorsese-esque rip-off but and all that stuff. There's actually like lots of really good movies yeah. that I think have more depth than this. Yes. Yeah, I think that... Uh, I think the I think it's quite a shallow film. I would agree to that. I, I would say the good thing about it and the interesting thing about it in the that I haven't seen in my entire lifetime a movie or a converse, a broad conversation worldwide from so many different perspectives and so many different um, uh, film literacy education levels uh, of people of a widespread discussion like this about a divisive piece of art ever mm. in my lifetime. Yeah. Like there where everyone has seen it, it's made almost a billion dollars already and people have an opinion and people are sharing that opinion and there is a discourse whether it 
is um, civil or not, I mm. can't really say, but I find that really exciting to see mm. a piece of art and piece of film being uh, so widely talked about and the artistic merits of it being widely talked about mm. uh, in such a big mainstream conversation. I've never seen that before in my entire life. Right. And I've spent my entire life reading film discussion and in contributing to film discussion. And I've never seen that before. So I think that is the good thing about it and the exciting thing about it. Mm. But also, like you said, it's a shallow film. I would agree to that. And that's my, that was my reading of it as well. And it, it disappoints me because um, two years ago, there was a movie directed by Lynn Shelton called You Were Never Really Here that stars right. Joaquin yep. Phoenix. Yep. And I think this movie is a, a near masterpiece. I think it's a f- great movie that uses the works of Scorsese, in mostly Taxi Driver, mm-hmm. as like a first draft. And it shows like this gritty, new gritty side of New York City. Mm-hmm. Uses Taxi Driver as a first draft and it stars Joaquin Phoenix as like this... Uh, mercenary vigilante that uh, tr- like rescues young girls that have been pushed and forced into sex work mm-hmm. and he lives with his uh, mentally unwell mother and cares for her in the apartment that he in the house that he grew up in and he uh, lives with this uh, traumatic post-traumatic stress disorder and mental illness that's given like this really subtle touch and is like really beautifully translated to uh, feel like the filmic technique and the filmic language of the film mm. and the movie I just described to you is so similar to Joker yeah right and Joker's almost made a billion dollars that movie made like less than 10 million dollars at the box office right and it's like actually like an art house action movie that's really cool right and then no one has seen it no one yeah. knows about it and it's like so on paper the same movie and the same experience but more artistically done and it's doing fresher and more interesting stuff in my opinion yeah and then just because this movie has uh an icon of popular culture at the forefront and uses the iconography of um a story that is so in the forefront of our imaginations in the world at the moment yeah that uh it, it just has eclipsed <laughs> this other movie that is it's so disappointing isn't so it? disappointing also weirdly i'm not saying that the characters are the same but performance wise mm. i'm not even saying the style of performance, but the spirit of the performance. Yes. I feel like if you want to see Joaquin Phoenix be amazing, mm. watch The Master. Absolutely, yeah. Like, That's that a is... great performance. And you're seeing him, like, you know, make his really slim body in, like, these weird contortions, oh. like, the same as Joker. That and, is an know. outrageously good film. Yeah, absolutely. It's gorgeous. Yeah. And you're seeing, like, Philip Seymour Hoffman, top of his entire career as well. Oh, you know, the the physical and the intellectual alpha males yeah. competing. Yeah, and also you've got this, in, this really interesting performance from Amy Adams as well, yes. where it's just like... Oh man, like it doesn't compare. <laughs> you can't compare it all because yeah. it's just a, a, such a beautiful work. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, <laughs> I'm so sorry to just no. find an excuse to shit on Joker uh, while we're here talking about Watchmen. Mate, well, I feel like, uh, but I honestly do feel like there are parallels with, uh, you know, Rorschach mm. and the, the fandom. In yes. certain parts of uh, the world that uh, have read this graphic yeah. novel and seen Zack Snyder's movie, yeah, and I, I feel like they're very similar types of people that get into that character. And then you're seeing it be interpreted by Lindelof in those tra- oh, the trailers oh, yeah. already for the series. Right. I mean, we it, as we're recording this, the series has not come out yet, so it's no. all speculative for us. But you're seeing from what we can gather from the trailers that there is this this 
cult of yeah. worship of Rorschach, where yeah. there's like this almost terrorist group or something that use the iconography and symbolism yes. of that character to strike fear and send a message. And it feels like that it, uh, it, it's like a uh, <laughs> remember. Uh, you two covering uh, Helder Skelter. Yeah. <laughs> Manson took this from the Beatles. We're yeah. taking it back. And it feels like Lindelof is taking yeah. what you think of Rorschach oh. back from uh, and bringing it back to what you were originally <laughs> meant to think. I've never seen you two used so intellectually before to discuss art. Like, Bono somewhere <laughs> is wrapped. Uh, so in this, we see uh, that there's the funeral for yep. the comedian and we have uh, the heroes Ozymandias, Dr. Manhattan and Night Owl. Uh, in their civilian guides. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the priest reads from the Sermon on the Mount, which includes the lines, For he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and the unjust, which suits the evil goes unpunished theme mm. uh, in this. Is this a really depressing read, or does it succeed as a satire of superheroes? And uh, what... What what do you think of that as a as a as a general idea? Does that kind of bum you out, or do, do you kind of get a little bit of a kick out of it from a from the satire side? Of it? I think I absolutely get a kick out of it in the satire yeah. side because I love my comic books and comic book media with like a touch of subtext like that, mm. where it's like, yeah, the these. Uh, these are flawed, fucked up people mm. that are p- somehow possessed to wear a costume to fight crime. Yeah. And I think, you know, in this graphic novel, it's so beautifully done and it's so special because between each chapter, you've got the... Uh, You've got that mixed media, basically, mm. of your either seeing, like, the excerpts from... Uh... There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Uh, Hollis's uh, memoir or like, you know, letters and stuff like that. And especially in Hollis's memoir where it's like he's kind of acknowledging the ridiculousness of yeah. it, of like, yeah, wear these costumed vigilantes and calling them uh, like one of the costume adventurers. Oh, they're masks. The masked adventurers, yeah, and which weirdos. is <laughs> such. It's hearing how how silly that sounds. The yeah. masked adventurers, and then it makes you go like, oh yeah, superhero also is a silly word. Oh, and, yeah. You know, like, and I think that the satire of that is so yeah. rich and funny and so. I mean, 
you're the expert on this, I would say, before this, had there been such a, a dark satire on like bringing to bringing a certain uh, real world logic or real world world perspective on the idea of what if superheroes existed in this world and what they would if someone was weird enough to wear a costume? Yeah, you know, there was a, a book, and I'm going to draw a blank on it. Actually, I'm going to look it up mm. while I'm uh, telling you. There was a there was a book that came out that was a huge influence on Alan Moore, and uh, in that book, uh, the, the heroes uh, often had, like, sexual hang-ups or they, yeah. they'd forgotten their magic word and oh, all that wow. kind of stuff. Uh, and then there was... Um, uh, he, he was heavily influenced by... Uh, I think it was a mad parody called Super Duper Man, and uh, which kind of which, awesome. which was funny because it added the real world <laughs> issues to, the, to that character. I had no idea that the origin of Watchmen was a Mad Magazine well, parody of it, Superman. Well, it's more a um, uh, it was more an inspiration for for Alan Moore. Yeah, uh, and you know. Like there's a conspiracy in mm. in that book. Yeah. God, I wish I could remember the name of it. Uh, at the at the moment. God, is I that why even... you think Moloch looks so much like Alfred E. Nyman? Oh, Alfred E. Newman. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'll have to look it up a little bit later. I'm just drawing a blank uh, blank on the the name of it, but it's um it's a fairly famous book. Uh, I keep looking at my bookcase, thinking Hoping it must it's be there. there somewhere, but I, <laughs> I can't see it. Uh, and then, uh, so I've read some stuff in the past. There was, you know, there was in the seventies. There was an Aquaman story mm. where they revealed the uh, the identity of the villain, mm. and it was uh, they didn't know who it was, and that that was kind of a oh yeah oh hang on because it's always. Who's the Green Goblin? Oh, it's Norman Osborn, the person I've been hanging out with yeah. the whole time. Yeah, I think uh, I think that was one of the reasons Steve Ditko wanted to leave uh, Spider Man initially. I think he didn't want the Green Goblin mm. to be. I might be wrong about that, but uh, I don't. I think he didn't necessarily want the Green Goblin to be someone who was so tied into Peter Parker's yeah. family. So I, I think there were, you know, you were starting to get a taste for it uh, over in Britain. You know, you you had Alan Moore doing uh, Miracle Man. Yeah. And that was kind of uh, a reinvention of the of superhero tropes as yeah. well. And that was bef- he started that before Watchmen. So, you know, I think there was uh, the, the sophistication was starting to be applied. Mm. And then you start to and you know, and this is at that point a distillation of the stuff that he was working towards. Yeah. I think that's why he you look back on Killing Joke and even though it's a I would say that is a comic that probably gets a little more respect because of the artwork. Mm. Because I think Brian Boland's artwork is stunning. Yeah, and the storytelling is great. Yeah. But ultimately, and, you know, there are, the, you know, the multiple choice, uh, mm. you know, lives of the Joker as, yeah. as a theory, you know, that gives us uh, Heath Ledger, you know. So there's great stuff, but there's also some you know, pretty awful stuff in it that yeah. hasn't aged very well. So, but yeah, this was kind of, I think this was the first, you know, major big creators shining a light. You also had uh, the Dark Knight, uh, Frank Miller series uh, yeah. that came out. They, they, they These all came out at the same time. And once again, that's also a comic that people miss the satire yeah. in. 
you know, like there's a there's an aged Ronald Reagan as the yeah. president <laughs> all the way through it, you know. So you think that it was like the create like the the people like Alan Moore and Frank Miller who had been so involved in the mainstream yeah. of what comic books were at the time, making that turn where they're like, oh, this is ridiculous. Well, I feel like they were, you know. Like, Frank Miller, uh, especially with uh, Daredevil, had taken mm. that from a third-tier character to, uh, you know... To the top. To the top. And Alan Moore was on Swamp Thing. Uh, yeah. So that was still a little bit... Like I feel like Alan Moore, in, in many ways, was always still alternative. Mm. Uh, but, uh, you know, was producing a few things that were getting some massive hits. But it's... Uh, yeah, I think this is, you know... Y- y- You'd already had, you know, I don't want to do a disservice to other uh, creators like mm. Chris Claremont and uh, John Byrne turning uh, X-Men into, uh, you know, into this really complicated soap opera, yeah. you know, sci-fi soap opera. You had uh, Marv Wolfman and uh, George Perez doing the same thing with uh, Teen Titans. So there, there was starting to get a little bit of sophistication. Yeah, in self-awareness yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, you know, in this, uh, it's such an interesting chapter because you get so many looks at the comedian, a character Mm. who is already dead, and you see them through the eyes of, uh, you know, the three main men at that funeral. And what what, what stands out the most to you, uh, for me, it's the... The, the moment in Vietnam where yeah. Dr. Manhattan... I feel like I learned so much about the comedian and Dr. Manhattan yeah. at that point where that poor woman who the comedian has gotten pregnant and she's thinking he's going to take her back to America. He and, has to, yeah. And he, and he says he won't and then she attacks him and then, like, when he shoots her, like... And the way Dr. Manhattan just kind of watches it... Yeah. Like, I already knew from his big naked appearance in the first issue that yeah. he was out of touch, but you see that and you... And, you know, the comedian calls him out on it as well. Yeah, because Dr. Manhattan's, like, openly feeling this sorrow and putting the blame on the comedian. The comedian's like, no, well, you could have stopped it. You could have turned the bullets into steam, etc. Yeah. And which that line, what is the exact line of that? It's, uh, I feel like you're very close with that line, actually. Yeah, it's... It's it's, it's almost like uh, Avengers Infinity War. It's uh, Star-Lord shooting Thanos and he turns it into bubbles. Yeah, here we go. I've got it. You watched me. You could have changed the gun into steam or the bullets into mercury or the bottle into snowflakes and you could have teleported either of us to goddamn australia but you didn't lift a finger yeah such a good line like such a great line where he's putting the blame on himself putting the blame on the woman and putting the latin blame on dr manhattan or like you know deflecting the blame from himself completely putting it on the other two people where it just shows the comedian is is also this like immature this immature dick yeah, like where sure. he will not accept the blame for killing this woman instead putting the onus on her and then putting the onus of on Dr. Manhattan for allowing the, any of the situation to happen right and uh, I, I feel like uh, you know the interaction with Dan Dreiberg is uh, quite fascinating mm. as well I, 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 the mo- it's, it's funny I've never thought this before and having lived with this for such a long time mm. but doing the reread and preparing for this podcast I really like Dan like mm, he's he's a bit too. he's a bit of a schlub yeah and he's a bit you know 
probably could have done a lot of good things with that money and that yeah. uh, technology that he has. Much like, you know, when you think, <laughs> hey, Bruce, stop dressing up as Batman and yeah. why don't you just put money and all your technological uh, advancements into the city? This, it's so funny you bring that up because, of course, people like you and I who use their money to live a geek fantasy yes. connect with this character on a later on a later yeah. reading of it. We're like, yeah, that's it. I spent my life collecting the shit that I love and spend my hard-earned money collecting this shit that I love and living the lifestyle I dream of. Are you, uh, are you saying that if I just put my mind to it, I could go out and fight crime? Now? Absolutely. I'll do it. That's you. I will do it. I think there's a, there's a line that you put in your notes, in yep. your synopsis, I think, or in this question where... Um, you described the funeral scene and seeing the perspective of Manhattan, Ozymandias, and uh, is it Dryberg? Yeah, uh, Nidal. Nidal, uh, looking back at uh, the interaction with the comedian, each yeah. one of them at different time periods, you use the word reminisce. Yeah. And that's uh, that struck me because that's not how I would describe... Um, what we see. Right. I think it's the right word because even though they're looking at this horrible shit guy and mm. going back and looking at this this guy who in each of these flashbacks is an asshole, is a bad guy, mm. where I think reminisce is the right word because these people, these three men are fantasizing about the glory days that they once had. Mm. They are looking back at the golden age of their life. Right. The time where they were relevant, the time where everything was exciting, where they were these adventurers, and even though they're looking at this like these bad moments, these guys, I think reminisce is the right word. Well, in many ways, it's the comedian. It's it's looking back at their glory days, but it's also the comedian puncturing those moments. Yes, and it's almost like, uh, and I'll get to Adrian in a sec. But for Night Owl, it's you know it's the keen act and it's the mm-hmm. riots and it's everyone wanting superheroes to stop and the way the comedian really enjoys it. And at that point, Night Owl is freaked out by it, yeah. you know, and but the comedian's like reveling in it. Yeah. And, you know, Dr. Manhattan, you know, they've just won Vietnam and he's he's already starting to become more and more removed. And mm. then that moment happens, which because he sees time and space all at once, you know, he's probably, he's, he's thinking about that moment at exactly the same time he's at the funeral and probably at exactly yeah. the same time further in the future, wondering yeah. who he is, you know, and that's kind of, if you want to look at it, and I, I don't want to, because we do do stand-up comedy, I don't want to sound like we're, you know, pumping up our industry, <laughs> but a good comedian often does puncture yeah. what's going on in an entertaining way. Yeah. Like, can do. Yeah. You know, like the, some of the best, you know, like Carlin. You know, yeah. you see Carlin on a tear and you're laughing and you think he's brilliant and then you're thinking about what he says and you go, well, my world's just changed. <laughs> A tiny degree. You've really yeah. pointed something out to me. That My I perspective wasn't is now different. But you know what's interesting in this chapter is the uh, it's so important to Adrian V mm. because there's the panel where you know that they've tried to get this team together and you know the comedians told everyone that they're idiots mm. and everyone's it's turned into a disarray and then. Uh, the comedian sets the map yeah. up that uh, that they're going to go and fight crime and how they're going to do it. And, yeah. it's, and he set it on fire. And it burns half the map. And there's this panel where Veet looks at a half-burned map of yeah. New York. 
and you've got the the lame Captain Metropolis. Yeah, the, who's got another ridiculous oh, costume. Ridiculous costume. He's got a writhing pants on, but like, he, a, like yeah, a 1930s right? director. And he also he's he's originally from the 40s, and yeah. he he's already looking too old to be hanging out with these guys Absolutely, in the 70s. You know, yeah. like, and some of the stuff that he wants to fight. If you look deep in the panels, some oh. of the things it's like promiscuity, the the black problem. Like he's drugs. awful. There's one that is just drugs, drugs. in all caps. And he's awful, right? Yeah. But, um, so as- one of them is the other one is anti-war demonstrations, right? Like, Where it's just like what an out of touch like loser guy. Yeah, because he's from you know we fought in World War Two. Yeah, he's you the know, guy now great. going like kids, put your smartphones down. I'm fighting uh, yeah. against that. Like yeah, if- <laughs> yeah, exactly. So this panel where Veet's looking at a half burned mm-hmm. map of New York and Captain Metropolis yells, "Somebody has to save the world." That's yeah. the comic. Yeah. That's the comic right there. That's that is it. the whole plot of the comic in one panel. Yeah. Where I, so in Adrian Veet's, at this stage, mm-hmm. he's Ozymandias. He's the, the perfect man. Yeah. And then he sees this moment and the comedian, as he has in those other two moments with the other two characters, he has changed Veet and that is his plan. Yeah. Burn half the city, save the world. Save the world. You know? And it's, looking at this artwork again, like... Unbelievable. Because knowing that, I saw that as well, like yeah. going back and reading this again, it's like, holy crap. <laughs> and then like, and, and especially that it's such a significant moment early on. Right. And then looking at how beautifully and artistically uh, simple the artwork is, yeah. where you've got that whole key image that explains it all. It's like yes. this focus point. It's this moment of huge foreshadowing is like a three-inch image on a tiny, like a tiny image on the page in chapter two. In chapter two, right? It's so hidden and so thrown away. And then the beautiful symmetry where the next, in- the next panel across to the right, yeah. It's like to use filmic language, it's like this beautiful match cut where you go from Ozymandias to Adrian Veet. And you see the beautiful face of Ozymandias. He's got like that beautiful Roman golden band yeah. sitting around his head. He's got his little domino mask on. And then you're cutting, or you know, the little mask that sits upon his face. And then you cut to uh, 20-something years later yeah. where you've got this same face. It's sagging. It's slightly, yeah. you see that the, 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 the image on his face is just sorrow now. Yeah. And he's got like this, his hair has faded from this gold yeah. to this kind of like dusty brown. And yeah. you're just like, it, the impact it looks like Robert the, Redford there. Absolutely. He yeah. looks like Robert Redford there. And it's just like, you're seeing like this, the, it's just like, I can't, going back, I just can't say enough of how much I appreciate the artwork now. Right. Where you're seeing so much imagery put into these really two small, simple um, portrait style profiles. Yeah. And these panels. And I just like, it's, uh, I think now I'm a fan of the art of Watchmen. Oh, yeah. Rather than just the text going back for it, going back into it like this. And appreciating it more on this level. Do you do you enjoy the uh, the excerpts from the book at the end? I, I'm mm. always curious about this because uh, I know some people don't enjoy the reading of it. I know some people skim over. It. I know some people who've read the graphic novels who have never even bothered with that kind of stuff. Yeah. And uh, Siobhan Coombs and I were discussing about you know how hard it is to go from reading a comic to reading yes like slabs of text. And I, I'm not really a big fan of it, but when I was reading it as a monthly, mm. I devoured that stuff because I, I had to wait for the next yeah. issue. It's like binge 
you know, to me, a graphic novel is binge watching it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think I, when you told me originally, like last year, that when you had the when you were coming up with the idea of this podcast, yeah, that um, you read it monthly you read it all yeah. issue to issue it wasn't even monthly for you you were saying where there was a time period we had to wait uh, like six months between issues uh there was like i i i feel like it was like three months i yeah. feel like i feel like it was three to four months between issues 11 and 12 and i couldn't oh, have that wrong heavens. but this was before the internet <laughs> yeah so it was and i i've told this story on stage yeah uh but You'd go in, and it was meant to be out monthly, and you'd yep. go into the comic shop, and you'd say, is the last issue of Watchmen out? And they'd go, nah. And they'd say, and they'd have you no know- idea. Yeah, do you know when the next one's coming out? And they'd go, nah. And that's how <laughs> your life was. Yeah. And you just had to, like... Accept it. And you just never knew. And I, I <laughs> and something like this, I can't even imagine reading it that way. Oh, Alexi. And um, I, th- I genuinely, uh, rereading it now, I skipped the first... Chapters, uh, Hollis memoir that comes in at yeah. the end. Um, be- knowing as well that I was going to be doing the deeper dive on the second chapter. Yeah. And so when I got to the second chapter, I was like, no, I have to read this. I have to yeah. make time to read the, uh, the memoir at the end. And I loved it. Yeah. And I don't remember if, I think I appreciated them uh, at the time of my first reading because, um, you know, this is a really big introduction to graphic novels, especially for someone like me at that time, Mm. 14 years old, discovering them as an art form. I have always loved the idea of mixed media Mm. and to see that this is not just the linear or um, the linear plot or of... Uh, superhero story. There's all these mixed in elements of like, yes, we are getting those uh, moments of memoir that are just text, mm. uh, that add color and add um, that add character to. Uh, you know, the original um, Night Owl is fairly otherwise absent from the story. Right. Like he's not. He's he's not not in it, and he, he's not a significant character but it adds color to the world exactly you get a sense of how we get to dan mm. uh and it also really explains it, it's, a, it's a lot of world building yes in a way that isn't saying that it's world building so you so you completely understand how we get to this point in the mid 80s yeah with these guys hanging around and also it adds this whole texture and flavor of um what is the media and art and the perspectives of these people in this world right. of the graphic novel, right. like the world that they live in. So I think it makes that world so much bigger and so mm. much more uh, grounded or real, where it's yeah. like I, I, you can believe anything because, yeah, there's a character in this book who's written a whole biography. Yeah. Where you're like, he's had a real life. I, bu- yeah. I buy into it. So it just adds like this texture of um, groundedness without bringing any... Uh, like, like I would never say this novel, graphic novel, is gives off a sense of reality no. because it's like you know, it's so colorful, it's so strange, it's so such a beautiful uh, realization of alternative history. Yeah, uh, it never feels real, but it allows you to buy it all. Right, where you're like, this can, this is this for 
purposes of reading the novel is real to me. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. I agree totally. Let's do a deep dive on the comedian. Mm-hmm. Uh, the character is based on the Charlton Comics character Peacemaker. So Charlton Comics were uh, their own company uh, before they were bought by DC, mm-hmm. uh, just in time for Crisis on Infinite Earths. Uh, to be honest, I have never really read any of the Charlton comics. Mm. It's a big hole in my uh, reading uh, history, but uh, I was introduced to them in the Crisis story. So uh, the Peacemaker was created by Joe Gill and Pat Boyetta, I think, in 1966. He's a soldier and hero who loves peace so much he's willing to kill for it. Mm. Interesting. Uh, The name, Blake Edwards... You will love this. Yep. It's a play on the movie director, best known for the Pink Panther movies. Yep. There you go. <laughs> exactly. That's such a funny little thing to have added there. Um, yeah, what a what a fascinating uh, character the comedian ended up being. Yeah. Uh, you know, he's he's such a such a complicated character, and once again, coming from such a, a simple kind of uh, build up mm. of the peacemaker, you know, yep. peacemaker. You loves know, peace, loves peace, and he'll kill for it. Yeah, you know, and then you, then you get the moral quagmire that is uh, the comedian, which yeah. is uh, fascinating. Uh, we should finish up, but I've got some squid bits for you <laughs> that I thought you might appreciate. Um, early on, we see uh, Sally Jupiter. Yeah, and uh, more wanted to emphasize that even though Sally is in her early sixties. He wanted her to maintain her sexuality as that's a part of her nature. And it's, uh, once again, it, she does look like an older woman. Yeah. Who. She does not look 60 in, the, in oh, this. Oh, I reckon either. she does. Oh, really? Don't I always, Sa- I always read her as incredibly old in this, in this first part. I think it's maybe just that poodle hair and very masculine looking drawing. I think you're. Remember, this is the 80s. Yeah, I think, uh, like, I think you're pe- right. People hadn't had as much surgery then and weren't yeah. colouring their hair. But, uh, you know. But I always think love... Of, think of uh, Bette Davis as yeah. she got older. Do you know what I mean? That's that's... What, I think that's what I think of when I see this. Yeah, where it's right. like, oh, yeah, I see, like, 90-year-old one day from death, Betty Davis. Right, right. No, she's, I think she's meant to be around 63, yeah, 64, absolutely. something you, like that. You're, you're right. Yeah. yeah. And I bet, you know, that I love that she's, like, finding these old dirty comics of oh. her that have been sent in and she's you know, reliving the fantasy of being like this sexy model back in her day. Yes. So uh, the on page four, we see the Tijuana Bible mm-hmm. that someone has sent to her. Yeah. And I love that she's into it. Like, I, I think that's a really, uh, once again, that's the complexity that you probably hadn't seen in comics before. Mm. A, they would never have mentioned that kind of thing. Something B, so if someone was sent something like that, they would be yeah. offended. But she, like her daughter's offended, but yeah. she's... Sally's like, oh, it reminds me of when people desired me yeah. and that, and I'm still very sexual in the way yeah. that I carry myself. Uh, for those people who don't know what the Tijuana Bible is, uh, these booklets were produced and distributed in secret uh, throughout, I think it was like the 40s and 50s mm. and that, and chronicled the explicit sexual exploits of cartoon characters, oh celebrities gosh. and folk heroes. That's nuts. And I think especially 
there's so much texture in that uh, Hollis memoir at the end where they're yeah. talking about like, yeah, she used her superhero stuff to kind of launch a media career right. and launch, <laughs> launch basically a model presenter career. Right. And they say, and he uses the words, and we did not begrudge that of her. We were happy for her to do that. You know who she is now? She's on The Bachelorette. She goes and fights crime. <laughs> she beca- she goes on The Bachelorette. Yeah. Host Breakfast Radio. That's it. Yeah, Breakfast Radio host after this. So funny. Uh, interesting though, isn't it? Uh, mm. Doing a deep dive on the Tijuana Bible stuff was yeah. interesting. Um, the Elvis Costello song that gives the chapter its name is from the album Goodbye Cruel World. Mm. Fits in with everything that's going Absolutely. on in this. That's a sign that uh, Rorschach must carry at some point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Man, I, I feel like, uh, oh, would he be into music? I don't think he'd be into music. He oh, wouldn't have time for it. <laughs> He's never heard a song. I'm always curious, <laughs> like, when, when people start adding real world mm. shit to superheroes, I always get bored because I think why don't you add something really interesting real world like what the what music does Bruce Wayne listen to yeah oh god what was what's, what's what Bruce was, Wayne's taste what's his taste yeah what is he like I what? feel like he's he's listening to opera <laughs> don't you oh, think yeah. and classical music yeah he's of course he's listening to opera he's just wallowing in the death of his parents all yeah. the time so Superman yeah Superman Bruce probably, Springsteen yeah <laughs> Absolutely. He's into Springsteen. He, and he doesn't get the irony behind Springsteen. He's just like, yeah, born uh, the USA. Uh, I, no, I think you're being cruel to Superman. I'm a Superman apologist. I feel like he's poorly written. Uh, yeah. That's the problem with Superman. No, yeah. I reckon he would... No, I reckon, I reckon he would have people... He would have fans of him... Mm. Who would get into Springsteen for the wrong reasons? Yeah. <laughs> and he would be very gentle in the way that he yeah. would set them right. Yeah, he he would have someone say, "Yeah, I like you because you like uh, Bruce Springsteen and you're born in the USA." And he'd be saying, "That's very nice actually, of you, but I was know not born in the USA. I was actually uh... and that's a satirical song. Yeah, you are not meant to take it on face value. <laughs> By the way, I'm Superman. Um, on page two in the top panel, if you have a look there, Alexi. Uh, just uh, once again, talking about the the beauty of the artwork, mm. you can see Moloch with his roses in the background. So he's he's right there in. Uh, uh, oh you know. yeah. So he's he's there very early on, which I love. Uh, when we get to page six, panel nine, there's the King Mob mask. And that is a reference to the radical group of artists and provocateurs from the 60s and 70s who embraced anarchy and anti-capitalism and used popular culture to promote their themes. They saw themselves as carrying on the traditions of Dadaism and surrealism, espoused anti-authoritarian sentiments and deplored commercialism. So if they're around now, they're probably all getting high because they can't cope. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like the world has turned <laughs> awfully for them, but uh, King Mob also the name of uh, one of the main characters in Grant Morrison's The Invisibles. Mm-hmm. Uh, really interesting story because this is a podcast that could be a whole podcast in itself. Yeah. But really, for anyone who's finds that a bit interesting, do a deep dive. Um, they uh, they they asked for people to assassinate Yoko Ono and David Bowie. Little known fact, and that makes me angry. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm you're against of, them. Come on. Not, not David Bowie. Like, don't, don't, the UK gets a bad rap as well. Anyway, um, here's a little interesting fact. In the, in the past, when you see Rorschach speak, mm. his font is the same as others. And that implication mm. means 
he hadn't developed his Rorschach voice until oh. much later. Like that little bit of detail. Yes, I noticed that because I was yes. like talking about how like it's cool how each character has like a different shape bubble and yes. shape voice. And then when I came across that, I was like, oh, they must have forgot to put it in there. No. Right. Oh, of course, no, of course. You know, uh, one of my uh, one of the things that annoys me is uh, when people. Uh, you know, say mm. that they don't like uh, the Dark Knight trilogy is yep. because they don't like uh, Batman's voice. voice. But yeah. I, I'm always like, you, you've got to put it in context. Yeah. Like, like imagine you're in the street and then that shit happens. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, but look, I, and I kind of understand when people say, well, what about when he's just talking with his friends and he's still doing the voice? And I'm like, mate, he, like once you're in character, you're in <laughs> character. Like, yeah. you know. Like, did we have a go at Daniel Day-Lewis when he was doing My Left Foot and they had to carry him around or when Al Pacino and Scent of a Woman t- told told his co-stars afterwards that he heard that they did good work? Come on! <laughs> they're actors. Um, <laughs> on uh, page 14, panel 7, you can see the comedian's blood spill onto his smiley face badge the way it does at the beginning of the comic. Mm. So, you know... Uh, the world echoes back and forth yeah. throughout this story. Uh, on page 20, you can see the food taken out of the fridge, uh, which we've already talked about. <laughs> yeah. It just makes me laugh so yeah. much. Uh, on page 25, there's a strip show with Enola Gay and the Little Boys, which is a reference to the plane and the name of the atomic bomb first dropped on Japan. Mm. So, man, like, this is a dark world. Yeah. Like, <laughs> this is a dark world where, oh, yeah, let's have a strip show. What should we call it? Name it after. So yeah. Jeez, like, even, even <laughs> when I go to a strip show, I'm thinking about everything. <laughs> One of the exploding. most atrocious things humankind has ever done to itself. Oh, yeah. Which, you know, it's pretty... It's 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 darkly uh, humorous, but it's, <laughs> it, it, you know, between all the bands like Crystal Narked and... A pale horse. No wonder Adrian Veet's making so much money, you know, with perfumes called nostalgia. Like yeah. he, he's about the only person who everyone's going. Oh yeah, thank God he's not banging on about a little relief. E- even though he's quite clearly yeah. preparing for the end of the world. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a uh, it's. <laughs> There's so much that you keep finding in this goddamn graphic novel every time you read it. Uh, and finally, the Pagliacci quote mm-hmm. is slightly wrong. And I didn't know oh. this. There is an opera of that name, which yeah. is Italian for clowns, but there aren't any characters named Pagliacci. It was originally told about Joseph Gimaldi, born 1778 uh, and died 1837, a British comedian and actor known as the King of Clowns. But some commentators think it might go back to Greek and Roman times. And uh, Dave Gibbons tried to get Zack Snyder to change it for the movie, uh, but he stuck with the comic script. And uh, oh. it was, uh, and Dave had told Alan Moore that story and mm. just had gotten it slightly wrong. So oh. that's interesting because wow. you know. I had no idea because that's the iconic version of that joke right. story. Right. Wow. Somewhere Gamaldi's going, hey! It's like Come it's on. like it's like a yeah. You know, it's like when you go to open mic and you see someone doing your material. Yeah. Oi, <laughs> what are you doing? You're getting it wrong. Uh, Alexi Toliopoulos, uh, thank you very much for joining the show. Where can people find you? Oh, you can find me on Twitter, Instagram. I'm at this is Alexi. I also have a movies podcast mm. called Total Reboot that we've had you on a few times. Yes, we just did a great. Uh, deep dive with you into the dark night. Oh, it was fun. Wasn't it was it? so much fun. It was so great. It's always great having you on that podcast. But what we do on it is we talk about reboots, remakes, and ripoffs in cinema and compare and contrast them with like the original 
yeah. uh, filmic inspirations. So we just have completed a mini series on the Joker yeah. in film. Uh, Cesar Romero through to Joaquin Phoenix, yeah. uh, focusing on one of the cinematic releases each time. And how'd you uh, go with the Jared Leto one? Oh man, it was uh, turned out to be thankfully a very fun episode. Yeah, but uh, Cameron and I both detested watching it. Yeah, and um, we both struggled to talk about it. There's a lot of distraction in that episode, uh, such as us talking about anything but the movie. <laughs> oh, yeah, right. Um, but uh, <laughs> I think we sum it up pretty well by the end of it. And uh, thankfully, I was pleased to get a lot of positive feedback on it because I thought that it might be a bad episode because right. uh, it's, you know people listen to that podcast to hear us talk about movies and <laughs> it was a time where we started talking about SNL instead oh, for a yeah. while yeah. Um, and kicking off Halloween because this episode's coming out pretty soon I gather yeah. we probably have in the midst of our uh, our horror miniseries for this spooky season and we've decided to go with The Ring Oh, uh, really? So we're talking about Ringu, the original Japanese uh, film from 1998. Yep. The Gore 2002, I would say, American horror classic. Yeah. Uh, starring our very own iconic Nomi Watts. Yeah. And then the new shitty reboot from like two years ago called Rings, which is no good, starring Johnny Galecki and Vincent D'Onofrio. Oh, I can't believe that that wasn't <laughs> that ex- good. <laughs> yeah, and that it exists at all. <laughs> um, so we've got Total Reboot. If you like this podcast, I'm sure you get into it. Yeah, and also, so Cameron James and I did this show, Finding Drago, for the ABC, which is like my dream documentary project that I worked on for years. If you haven't heard that yet, check it out. It's um, about the uh, me and Cameron coming across this... Uh, this novelization of the later years of Ivan Drago uh, from the villain from Rocky Four, and us trying to track down who the author of that weird, strange yeah. book is. That's great. Does it dovetail into uh, Creed Two? Uh, absolutely. We definitely yeah. it definitely comes up in there. Uh, Michael B. Jordan. Uh, oh, Mark I, would I be just, gorgeous if you ask me. Yeah, right. <laughs> and I am asking you, <laughs> oh, yeah. and I'm answering. Gorgeous. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you for listening to uh, this episode. We'll be back with another episode very soon. And uh, if you're enjoying it, please subscribe and uh, share it with the people that you think will enjoy it. And uh, if you know some people who won't enjoy it, well, let's just keep it between us. <laughs> thank Get you very to much. Listen to it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Alexi Toliopoulos. You can catch him on the excellent Total Reboot podcast with the very funny Cameron James. Alexi will be back next week to help me recap episode three of HBO's Watchmen. And then later in the week, Siobhan Coombs will return to talk about chapter three of the graphic novel. I'm going to be touring up to Brisbane and then down to Melbourne at the end of the month, so I'll let you know where you can find me so we can talk about all of this in person. Please drop us a nice review or star rating on whichever platform you use. And until then, I'm going to sit in my fridge until the next episode of Watchmen is on my screen. Hold up. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.